This week, we're going to talk about how a strong platform on climate action could actually be winning elections. Hello, and welcome to Outrage and Optimism, a new podcast about dealing with the climate crisis and remaking the world. My name's Tom Rivet-Karnak. I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. And today, we explore the assumption that has been so long held that ambitious platform on climate change will lose you the election. There is lots of evidence from around the world that this is now changing. We'll explore what's going on and find out what it means. Also, we sit down with Governor Jay Inslee, Governor Inslee of the state of Washington is running for the Democratic nomination to become president of the United States. And he is doing so on a platform of climate change. He says that all the critical issues of our time can be better understood through the lens of climate change. So we sit down with him and ask him what his platform consists of and why he feels that the United States is now ready for a campaign of this type. Thanks for being here. Right. So we're going to get into this issue of whether you can now win elections with an ambitious climate platform. But just before we do, um, there's been a really interesting development this week in Germany in that Angela Merkel has made a declaration that Germany will move to a target of carbon neutrality by 2050. Um, now, she made this announcement at the Petersburg Dialogue, which is a kind of gathering of environment ministers to talk about climate change that happens every year in Berlin. And um, during the discussion, she said, we in Germany need to have a cabinet discussion about carbon neutrality by 2050. The discussion should not be about whether we can reach it, but about how we're going to do it. If this was adopted, Germany would then join eight other EU governments with this type of ambitious commitment. And what's interesting is just a few months ago, uh, the EU Commissioner for Climate Action, Miguel Arias Cañete, made a proposal that EU targets should be strengthened. And he received a very public rebuke from Angela Merkel, saying, now is not the time to set more targets, now is the time to focus on delivery. So, what, what's going on here? Why has Chancellor Merkel taken this moment to step out further on climate change? Do we think this is the beginning of more countries stepping up? Christiana, I know you always had great respect for Chancellor Merkel when you were working with her when you were at the UNFCCC. How do you interpret this? Well, you know, um, it's interesting to see this in a larger context because in addition to her coming out just a few days ago with that statement that really does contradict where she was um, a little while ago. In addition to that, we have in New Zealand, the current government has put out a zero carbon bill and we have an upcoming election in Australia just a few uh, days from now where uh, many of the candidates, in fact, all the female candidates have uh, come forward with a very clear climate uh, agenda. And we have Shorten coming out just a few days ago, or in fact, even maybe just yesterday, I'm losing track of time here, to say uh, emergency. So quite interesting that we now have political leaders, uh, certainly in the EU, certainly in New Zealand, certainly in Australia, and increasingly in the United States, to name just the industrialized countries that are coming forward with much more aggressive climate stance. 
Now, we all know that politicians gravitate toward where they feel that the public sentiment is gravitating, and some some of them are behind public sentiment. Some would like to anticipate and be ahead, but in any in any uh, in any way, it is directional. Hmm. So, are we seeing a clear direction here for more public support? for responsible climate policy? I would argue yes. I would argue yes, and possibly because of three reasons. First, even more intense and frequent uh, climate-induced or at least climate-amplifying natural events that are uh, going beyond what we had before, beyond the previous norm and establishing a new norm. Secondly, certainly protests on the streets, and I think there is more and more of that, as well as an increasing understanding of the fact that climate is uh, linked, as we will hear a little bit later on, climate, uh, climate action is linked to many very critical, positive agenda items that everyone wants. More jobs, better health, better transport, more livable cities. So I think all of these things are actually all coming together to enable political leaders to take much stronger positions on climate action. I, th- I think that's interesting. I think what, you know, one the, the, the question comes, though, that much of what you just said has been true for a while, right? It's been true for a number of years, but all of a sudden there seems to be this inflection point. Paul, what are you, what are you seeing? Well, I, you know, I, I think it's intriguing to see uh, Chancellor Merkel moving position. I think uh, Christian is absolutely right to talk about public opinion changing. But I also think that there are other forces in society. You know, there are significant, um, you know, financial interests, corporate interests who want to kind of keep the status quo. And they will also, you know, influence public opinion by placing news news articles and, and, and influencing uh, coverage in many regards. So you get this kind of ebb and flow. And a politician, even one as, as powerful as Angela Merkel, can be a bit like a like a football, if you'll forgive the analogy, being kind of kicked around a football field right. by different forces. But just one thing I would say about Australia, which I think is super interesting, let's remember that there are cycles of this. They're moving in the right direction. But, you know, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, uh, he signed the instrument of ratification of the Kyoto Protocol as his first official act on the 3rd of December 2007. And he did that because he'd campaigned on climate change in the Australian election in 2007. So right. there are these waves uh, and they change. Hold on, Paul. And how many prime ministers have actually been elected and then kicked <laughs> out of office in Australia because of climate. I think we're up to like eight or nine in 10 years. You know, some people would say, uh, you know, (laughs) half jokingly that there's been a coup. I mean, it's not just us saying it. It's not just you, Christiana, who cheekily suggests that. Um, It was the Sydney Morning Herald that said on the front page, how much does it cost to remove a prime minister? $23 million. That's what the mining company spent to remove the prime minister. So yeah, you're not joking. It's it's kind of, uh, it's it's part of the story. I mean, what's interesting now is, I mean, so, so, I mean, Australian election is coming up tomorrow when people hear this. So, um, at the moment, it's looking like the Labour Party is going to do it. Uh, I mean, there could not be a bigger divide between the parties. The Liberals, the sitting PM, Scott Morrison, actually 
brings lumps of coal into Parliament and holds them up to claim that they're harmless. Um, the Labour Party, on the other hand, is not perfect, but they're far more serious. They are harmless if you just look at them. It's well, the burning of them that's the yeah. problem. It's, uh, don't, don't burn them. That's a good point. If he combusted a whole pile in the middle of Parliament, then it would have actually... If you leave all that coal in the ground or if you, you know, just put it on somebody's <laughs> desk, it is harmless. So he's actually making a good statement. <laughs> It is correct. Looking at it is harmless. That's it. So, okay, we should say, Scott Morrison, if you want to do a test, we will put you in a room and burn some coal and see if it's still harmless. There we're, you go. That's an offer we're there making right that's here. That's a very good, that's a fantastic, uh, so outrage and optimism, sort of the, the outrage side of things, but could be optimistic outcome. Um, but what's been interesting is climate has become basically, and my Australian friends have been telling me, like basically one of the defining issues here. And both parties think it plays in their favour. You know, the Labour Party are really tying their fate to this, saying this is the issue of the time, you know, and vote, they think voters are getting behind them. And then the Liberal Party are saying, you know, everything they're saying about not taking climate change seriously and supporting the mining sector. So what's going on when both of those narratives are accelerating at the same time? Tom, um... I'm not sure that I can um, sophisticatedly answer your question, but this is what I think is important. Hmm. I think it is important that climate is a political issue, that it right. is actually a campaign issue, yep. because nothing would be worse than climate change or climate action, one being the threat and the other being the opportunity, being completely ignored in elections. So I yeah. think that we Which should is where we've been really for a long time. register here the success that, um, that climate, uh, both action and climate change, the threat and the opportunity, are front and center in this many elections. Frankly, it is the ignorance of this issue or, you know, the indifference to the issue that is the concern. Yeah. Uh, and it is not surprising that there are opinions on both sides about it. The good news is it is actually being discussed and people have very different opinions about it. That is already a success. Yeah. I think, and turning to the US, I mean, I think the US is so interesting because this climate, even in even four years ago in the democratic debates when Bernie and Hillary were kind of duking it out throughout the debates, there was, no, you know, there was all this stuff about there being no questions on climate change. Now, every single candidate has an extremely impressive array of ambitious targets. I mean, some are ahead of the pack. Jay Inslee, Beto O'Rourke have been very specific. But, but everybody is sort of supporting the Green New Deal, is coming behind this. And in fact, when Joe Biden came out uh, to launch his campaign recently, um, there was a, this leaked report that came out in Reuters that said he was going to seek a middle ground on climate change. That and didn't he's been, serve him well. And it's, he's been killed, right? I mean, it's it's taken so much momentum out of his campaign. It's really interesting. I would not have predicted, would it be here two years later, that this is such an important political issue. I was going to say just, you know, that the, the middle ground or whatever, there is there is a part of people that just don't want to think about climate change. You know, they, you know, they recognize, you know, I've got a big car. I, I have to travel a lot. I eat meat. I feel guilty and therefore they don't want to think about it. And, you know, I, I do think that it's not necessarily, I, I do kind of admire any kind of politician that, that tries to stop people feeling guilty and start making people feel um, empowered and to yeah. take action. So um, last week, if you all remember, we had uh, a very interesting conversation 
with a conservative thought leader in the UK that um, shared with us his thoughts of why that side of the political spectrum should get behind climate action. So today we might actually move completely to a different side, a move from the UK to the US, but also move from the conservative side to uh, the democratic side of which we now have, I think, 24 right. um, aspirants to the uh, to the new nomination with Bill Blasio having, having just come in. But it would be really interesting to hear one of those aspirants to the nomination, Jay Inslee, who has actually put climate change absolutely front and center and organizing all of his platform around climate action. Yeah. And and I think what's interesting and what's really refreshing about his platform is that he has, you know, ambitious policies on a range of issues from infrastructure to healthcare to defense. But what he says is you have to understand those things through the lens of climate change. They are fundamentally changed as a result of climate change. And the only way we're going to get on top of it is by looking at other issues from that perspective. And I totally believe that's where a lot of people from the, the US right wing can come in. I mean, this is a national security issue. Actually, in every country, climate change is national security. All right, guys, that's it. Should we talk to Jay Inslee? Yep. Great, let's talk to him. Governor, it's so great to meet you. Um, We really appreciate you doing this. And I have to say, Christiana and I have worked in climate change at the UN and elsewhere for many years. And we've been watching what you've been doing, both as a governor and now as a candidate for president. And to our minds, you, you deserve great credit for really moving the needle on climate and taking stands that have changed the conversation. So, so a sincere thank you at the front end from us for that. Um, so thanks for being here. And I'll hand over to Christiana to kick us off. So, Governor, um, in your experience as governor, you've actually been quite successful in passing several bills. The House bill on clean buildings the is already passed. You've also been working on the super polluting HFCs and other um, bills that really carry your signature, and I would say successfully so. On the other hand, as governor, you've also worked very hard to pass a carbon fee, which was rejected by the state uh, this year, and the Waxman-Markey bill that we were all so uh, enthused about and that you so courageously championed as a congressman was rejected in the U.S. Senate. And as we know, painfully, the Paris Agreement that Tom and I worked with, uh, worked for so hard, uh, is uh, actually now being questioned by the White House. So there's no doubt that the United States has been divided on climate for a long time. However, despite that, or maybe because of that, you have been so courageous in saying very, very clearly that you are basing your campaign for to be a candidate to president of the United States on the idea that a bold goal on climate can actually inspire people, it can bring them together. So could you please talk us through how you feel that the United States is actually now, finally, hopefully ready to buy into a bold vision of climate action and elect a president on that basis? What data are you seeing that convinces you that this is the moment for that kind of stance? 
Well, thanks for the question. By the way, thanks for uh, both of your leadership internationally. It's been an inspiration to us, and it's helped my state and my nation ultimately. So thank you for what you're doing, and it's an honor to be on your show. Uh, look, uh, I just think this is a, uh, a particular moment, a historic moment in our nation's history. It is a moment of urgent peril, but an equal moment of tremendous uh, economic promise. And we are now seeing these two uh, dynamic developments just peaking at the same time, both the the obvious uh, uh, destruction that we face on an imminent basis to many of the things we hold dear that is arriving on our doorstep and in our lives at the very same time that technological breakthroughs and entrepreneurship are giving us the technologies that allow us to tame this beast. Mm -hmm. And so in some sense, it's a, it, it, maybe it's, I don't know if irony is the right word, but at the same time that we see Paradise, California burned down, I was there a few months ago, and you know, you go through a town of 25,000, it was at night when I was driving through, and it was like just a post-apocalypse movie. I was in Hamburg, Iowa last week, where a town founded in 1858, never been flooded, now is virtually, uh, everybody had to be moved out because of the flooding of an unprecedented dimension in the Midwest. We know that that's going to become more frequent. So you're seeing what used to be a, when when you and I and started this effort, this this was an issue of a graph on a chart. We would show people lines on a graph of parts per million for, you know, since 1992 or before. Correct, correct. But now it's just seeing the ash on the hoods of your cars. Yep. And so you have that urgent dynamic occasion, but you also at the same time, the fact that the clean energy jobs in this nation are growing twice as fast as the national average. The number one fastest growing job is is a solar installer. Mm -hmm. We know this is a matter of, of tremendous opportunities at the very same moment. And we've got some elections coming up. So, yep. uh, you know, we're still in the Paris Agreement, by the way. Yes, so we are indeed. We actually are still in it. So, you know, not only do we have the U.S. Climate Alliance, which represents 23 states, we have the under two MOU internationally, and we're still in the Paris Agreement. And we, yep. we just need a president to ignite the the better uh, aspirational, optimistic view of, of, uh, of this nation. So I think the title of your show is correct. We ought to be both outraged at the inaction at the federal level, mm -hmm. and we ought to be optimistic about our ability to engage America in this grand adventure, and I believe we can when we get some new leadership. Well, Governor, we, of course, we, uh, we, we agree with you. We definitely agree with you. Um, but c can I just, you know, delve a little bit deeper into this political divide that we have seen in the United States? Because, um, uh, of course, it would be fantastic if uh, we are uh, moving into a bipartisan or perhaps even a nonpartisan view of climate change. And could I say that we have actually seen on the campaign trail, we've seen some some Democratic candidates, including you, talk about climate change to conservative audiences. In fact, even at a Fox News town hall. And to my surprise, receive an enthusiastic support when the candidate was saying that as a nation, the U.S. should reject Trump's assertion that climate change is a hoax. So what do you think is going on here with respect to that divide across the aisle that at least used to be there, and are we actually bridging that? So I think that uh, the American public is is changing its views uh, fairly rapidly on this, again, because of being able to personally observe these issues. 
it's hard to argue there's no climate change when, when your socks are wet and you're standing in a flood and your house is on fire. And that is changing the number of Americans who feel we should uh, defeat climate change has gone up 10 or 11 points just in the last 12 or 14 months. It's gone up to 75% now. Wow. In the Democratic side, it's certainly uh, very pre- prevalent. Uh, in the Iowa uh, primary voters just showed this was the highest priority tied with health care for the first time ever. So I think this dynamic is changing. And I do think there's been, if you watch the rhetoric it's, uh, of the Republican Party, I think that is demonstrative of the recognition that it is no longer possible to actually deny climate change in any, uh, in any meaningful sense. And the reason, I, the reason I, I note that is I went and testified in front of the uh, U.S. House Commerce Committee a couple of weeks ago, and it was different than would have been five or six years ago because none of the uh, hostile questions, they were you know, mostly hostile, but but none of them outright denied climate change. They realized that that just that that dog won't hunt anymore. Mm. They they've been told by their political pundits that that, that just looks ridiculous, farcical to 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 join Donald Trump, who says it's a a climate a Chinese hoax, and b he says wind turbines cause cancer when in fact we know they cause jobs. So the Republican Party is starting to understand they're in a pickle on this. Climate change no longer wins votes, it loses them votes. We won 40 seats in the House and seven votes in the governorship, in part because of this issue. And they're in a dilemma because now they've sort of recognized they can't deny climate change anymore, but they're still unwilling to really do anything about it. So we need to take them to the next step, Mm. which is to understand that if they're going to remain in office, they need to help uh, design solutions to this. And and by the way, we're, you know, we are eager for Republican assistance on this. Uh, the Democratic Party does not have a total monopoly on good ideas. And we're looking <laughs> for the Republicans to propose ideas on how to work on this. And if we can fashion bipartisan solutions, yep. uh, the more the merrier. And we, and we look forward to that day when the spirit of Teddy Roosevelt arrives. Until that happens, though, we, we need to retire some of these folks for private life. (laughs) We need people who will step up to the plate. Those flat earthers and those that don't believe in gravity. (laughs) Well, we believe, uh, we believe in gravity. I was, I was watching a movie last night about the the first guy to do a solo free ascent of El Capitan. And he said, I hope it's a low gravity day, but we know gravity is pretty persistent, just like climate change. (laughs) (laughs) Governor, I think what's very interesting about what you're saying, you know, I mean, this, when this tipping point comes from a political perspective, it can come very fast, right? And I think that the, 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 the changes that are happening from a climatic perspective, the fact that everybody is feeling this, um, are kind of galvanizing this. And, and in a way, what's going to be needed at some point is a kind of path back for that Republican narrative that enables them to incorporate this. And I think what's interesting about your platform is you look at multiple other issues through the climate lens. It would be, I mean, can you just talk for a bit about how does infrastructure look different? How does healthcare look different when understood in the context of climate Jobs. action? Jobs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so as you look at those, those other, you know, very bipartisan issues from a climate lens, how do they appear different? Well, I think that uh, what I'm finding success with is to talk with people about climate change through the lens of where they live and what they care about. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of climate change, if there is one, is that there's virtually nothing in our lives that, that somehow is not affected that you can talk about. So if you talk to a person whose central interest is national security, for instance, well, this is 
one of the greatest national security threats we have. We know that the Pentagon's hair is on fire about the political instability that's going to be caused by mass migrations driven by drought and hunger. And we're already seeing that in the northern part of Africa. We're experiencing that right now in Central America. As you realize, we've had a number of our folks coming to our southern border are climate refugees today. So uh, th- if what you care about is national security, this is a national security issue. The Central uh, Intelligence Agency and other of our other intelligence agencies have identified it. Trump has tried to ignore the clear advice he's getting, and I think that's unfortunate. If it's a health issue, look, if health is your issue, um, you know, think about the we- the sound of a child wheezing with asthma. It's a very disturbing yeah. sound. And unfortunately, we're hearing that sound more and more in part because of the prevalence of, of uh, fossil fuel pollution. And when we reduce our usage of fossil fuels, we reduce those pollutants and we reduce the prospects of asthma, uh, COPD, infectious diseases. I met a couple in New Hampshire the other day whose daughter missed two years in school because of Lyme disease. It is now moving north because of infectious diseases. I was in Greenville, South Carolina a few days ago where the the number of days where mosquitoes are out swarming is, is uh, increased by 24 days a year since 1989. So this is a health issue. We have to have yeah. health uh, uh, response to it as appropriate. And as Christiana noted, it's the biggest economic issue of our time. Two ways, and I think it's important to note this, it's not just one economic issue, it's two, because the first economic issue is we have got to start the destruction that is being wrought uh, on our country and the destruction of the assets we now have. And people people think there's some cost of the investment of clean energy. Clearly, it is a much more costly uh, avenue to, to go down the no-action avenue. Because that dooms us to billions of dollars of damage. We've had over a billion and a half dollars of damage already from the floods in the Midwest. When you have a whole town burned down of 25,000 people, that's not really very good for your economy. The Midwest has got it two ways because the trade wars that uh, President Trump has foisted on us have caused the markets to dry up for our agricultural products. So the farmers haven't had anywhere to sell their grain, so they've had to put it in their silos. Hmm. So they've packed it into their silos. But then when you drive around the rest right now, you see all these silos that have collapsed because of the floods. Oh, my God. So between a trade policy and a climate policy, that's been very damaging to our agricultural economy. So the point is, is that this is predicted by the end of the century in a, in a no-action alternative, in a status quo business-as-usual case, we will have damages that will be uh, potentially twice as big as the last recession to our economy. And that was devastating in people's lives. Mm. So that's the first part of the economy is avoiding the downside. But the upside is is just spectacular growth. Uh, I, you know, I'm just witnessing this all over the country and making electric batteries in Nevada and wind turbines in Iowa. And I've, I argued with, with uh, Megan McCain on The View a few weeks ago, she was saying that we're going to take away trains, planes, and autos. And I was saying, well, that's interesting. I've got a shiny blue General Motor all-electric bolt charging in my driveway right now, and it's made by American auto workers in, in Orion, Michigan. Uh, that's a vision for economic growth that we know is abundantly clear as taking place big time. 
So the beauty of this issue, again, if there is one, is it, it encompasses all of us and it encompasses all we hold dear in different parts of our life. And I think that's one thing a lot of politicians don't understand. They understand that, you know, this is not right. just climate change. When they do polling, they say, what do you care about? And people put climate change somewhere. But they might say economy number one, national security number two, and healthcare number three. Well, guess what? Climate change is all three of those things. Hmm. And yeah. we just need politicians and leaders who can talk to people about it in those terms. And and how do you explain that, uh, Governor, to those young people who are on the street? You know, the, this is not the first time, certainly, that the United States has seen civil disobedience. Uh, civil disobedience has had an, a very interesting role in the history of the United States. And now we're seeing civil disobedience in the United States around the world. Uh, London has been practically paralyzed by civil disobedience on climate change for a whole week now. And as you know, there's every week there's more and more young people on the streets. Well, what role do you see for those young people and not so young people to take to the streets and really call attention both to the opportunity and the urgency of, uh, of taking action? Well, uh, I am inspired by them, and I marched with them. I was in the—in fact, I was the only candidate for president marching with them a few weeks ago in the climate strike. I happened to be in New York and marched with them. Uh, in fact, uh, it was quite a scene to watch teenagers marching past Trump Tower, holding up signs saying, there is no planet B, and let us breathe Donald. <laughs> and— um, <laughs> I noticed that some of the 16 and 17-year-olds were using language that my parents would not be appreciative of, but the sentiment was one that was widely shared as they went past Trump Tower. Yeah. Uh, look, at these, these kids, are in, kids, young people, they're inspiring, they're brilliant, they know what's at stake, they recognize that in almost every social uh, justice movement in American history, civil disobedience in a nonviolent way has been part of raising the consciousness of people to alert people to the problem, to inspire people to join them in effort. And, you know, with the young people, I've always thought, you know, when I was involved in, as a young person, the, the, the message was don't study history, make it. Exactly. And that's what these young people are that's doing. That's what they're doing. You know, Greta Thunberg has done as much as anyone else in the, the world recently to, to get people thinking about this issue so we need to listen to these young folks, and it's their lives, and, and it's their lives that they understand that are so propound, profoundly impacted. I was at Dartmouth talking to a, a student group there, and this, the leader of the group told me that she had had two conversations in the previous couple of days with her friends who were questioning whether it was the right thing to do to bring a child into such a degraded world. Mm. Yeah. And when you, when you hear young people thinking in those terms of those, those so uh, distressing terms, it ought to inspire the Woodstock generation to get off the dime and do something. Mm -hmm. mm. And I, I kind of look at it as a member of the Woodstock generation that we owe this next generation a chance, and that's what's at stake. And as we exit the stage, we ought not to leave a degraded uh, place for our grandkids, and frankly, that's why I'm running for president, because I want to be able to look at my kids and grandkids in the eye when, on my end of my days and say I did everything I could for them. Yeah. So I'm inspired by these young people. I hope to keep marching. 
So, Governor, that, that segues very nicely into the next question, which I think probably has to be our last one. Um, and so if you are successful in persuading voters of this vision that they need to respond to climate change as the principal and defining challenge of our time and understand other issues through, those, through that lens, and if they elect you, how will the US look different after eight years of you being in office? Well, first off, I think we will become re-engaged with the fundamental tenets of the American character. And I think the American character is one based on optimism. It's based on a spirit that we can do big things. It's based on a perception that we want to bring justice and environmental justice is very important in this mission statement. It's based on a view that we want to lead the world, not be disengaged from it. And it's based on a view that we should expand our horizon rather than contract them. And uh, if I were given this high honor, I would help America uh, come to, uh, to reestablish those principles, to be in touch with the heart of the country. And I think that's where we are. And look, I, I was there, I was alive when Kennedy called us to go to the moon in 10 years. I know what an inspirational message can do. And I, you know, I can also understand the importance of a unified, full mobilization of the nation's energies, both intellectual uh, personal and financial in defeating fascism. And I understand that we have to have that kind of unified and organized response. Uh, so that's the broadest way to think of the change I think we need with new leadership. But the, the, you know, the, the vision that we ought to have is one that's based on having a healthier, more prosperous America that is that our transportation system is using energy sources that are not based on tailpipes spewing out uh, pollution into the air, and that we know even today we have technologies to do that from all electric cars to all electric buses to light rail to, dare I say it, even a bicycle or two. And so we know we're going to be a, capable of doing that. We simply have to find the will to do it. And having that will means that we move forward to have a, a clean electrical system. Uh, the bill that I hope to pass shortly will take short-term actions, not just long-term, but we will be shutting down our remaining coal-fired plant. We're going to get off coal-fired electricity by 2025 and have a, a fossil fuel uh, net carbon uh, neutral by 2030 and be totally off fossil fuels and the electrical grid by 2045. And that means to use all the abundant resources that we have and technologies we have. Mm. It means that we will have the, one of the biggest building efforts in American history. Look, we build th big things. We built the interstate highway system that created a whole new economy in the United States. We have something equivalent to that, rebuilding our physical infrastructure so we don't waste all our energy heating and cooling the outside and wasting... Uh, billions of dollars. And that is an enormous construction job for, for carpenters and laborers and electricians and plumbers, the people who really, really do work. Then we know in the, in the upcoming decades, we will have a tremendous increase in research and development. And we have to do that because we, we know there are uh, new horizons of new technologies. We're, uh, we're uh, experiencing that right now. I've started a clean energy research department here at the University of Washington is doing great work. And we know we have to embed a sense of environmental justice throughout this uh, effort so that we simultaneously reduce in income inequality and we care for the frontline community and the marginalized communities right. and communities of color who are frequently the first victims of 
these Indeed. efforts. Indeed. And we care and, and we find ways in skill development and job development that these communities can can develop middle middle income jobs. And we also, and I think this is an important aspect, provide great opportunities for those who are in older incumbent uh, industries. Look, we're doing that. When we're closing our coal-fired plant, we have a $55 million fund to help the, the families in retraining, in education, mm-hmm. and help small business development and communities to have infrastructure. We got to make sure everybody succeeds in this. Leave no one behind. Justin Verdant wall. Uh, leave no one behind. So that's a vision statement. I think it's a realistic one, and most importantly, it's a necessary one. Indeed. Well, Governor Inslee, what a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you so, so much for that uh, inspiring and exciting vision of uh, that you portray for us. And thank you in particular for your commitment to present well-being of those of us who are here now on this earth and uh, your commitment to improve the quality of life for future generations. Thank you very, very much. And all the best on the campaign trail. Thank you. Thanks for your Paris work. We're going to rebuild Notre Dame and we're going to rebuild our economy too. So There you go. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. So I thought that was a fascinating conversation with Governor Inslee. Um, I think that he's really had a huge amount of courage to decide that this is the moment that um, the United States is ready for a candidate that can understand issues through the lens of climate change. And and I don't know if he's going to win. I mean, the, it's, gonna, it's very early to say, and the polls are very, um, uh, they fluctuate a great deal. I wouldn't say he's one of the front runners. But, but whether he wins the nomination or not, I think he's charted new ground for a political candidate in the US to really carve out space as this is a primary defining issue. And I think we'll see much more of that in the coming years as this as the impacts and the needed response to that, to, to the climate issue, get, get more and more um, serious. Well, and I think, you know, as, as, as we said before, we chatted with, uh, with Governor Inslee that we really may be at the point, whether it is through Governor Inslee or whether it is through, let's call it an implicit consensus among all of the Democratic candidates, that whoever wins the nomination will have no other option but to take right. forward a responsible climate change uh, platform. And that in and of itself is different to where we were a few years ago in the United States, but also in many other countries. And it was just wonderful to hear him say, I'm really looking forward to getting ideas from the Republicans here. We on the Democrats don't have the monopoly. You know, he seems like he's very interested in weaving that bipartisan consensus that can really drive, you know, national action and indeed global action. Wonderful. Okay, well, this has been a great conversation around um, around politics and around climate and around how climate can be a powerful force in, in, in political movements in different countries around the world. I think this complements very nicely our discussion with William Hague last week, looking at it from the conservative perspective to kind of understand more from the liberal point of view uh, how this is seen. I do have to say that we're at a very interesting inflection point today because Australia goes to the polls within 24 hours. Um, Christiana, what message would you and- have? And this is the moment to make a plug. If you're an Australian and you are listening to this, please vote responsibly, vote for the candidate that is actually having your future at heart. As my, you know, my, my favorite question to Australians is, what do you want for your children? Do you want the Great Barrier Reef or do you want the largest aquatic cemetery 
in the world. It's a pretty simple decision. Nice. <laughs> this could be the beginning of the lead back to sanity if Australia votes for a candidate that's going to increase ambition. Yay. So uh, let's 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 hope that happens. Uh, we we believe in you. Um, but thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this has been another episode uh, of Outrage and Optimism. We are having such fun recording these. We really appreciate you listening every week. Uh, we're going to begin to explore a range of topics in the coming episodes that will be more controversial. We will have other voices on who come from different perspectives, many of which we may not agree with, but we really appreciate you coming with us on this journey to have a new type of conversation about solutions. And we're looking forward to taking it further. So thanks very much for joining us on this episode of Outrage and Optimism. Whether you joined us last week or whether you're new today, thanks for listening. And we really hope you'll subscribe and leave us a review, which really does make a huge difference. just remains for me to say that Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism. The co-hosts are Christiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and me, Tom Rivet-Karnak. I'd like to thank everyone who made this happen. Pete Clutton-Brock, Clay Carnill, Chloe Revel, Natasha Rivet-Karnak, Alexandra Vargas-Morera, Sarah Thomas, Marina Mancilla, Callum Grieve, and Zoe Cholakantich. I'd also like to thank Michael Northrup, from Rockefeller Brothers Fund and Nigel Topping from We Mean Business. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and be sure to hit the subscribe button and please do tell your friends. Join us next week, same time, same place for another conversation about reshaping the world. We'll see you then. We'll see you then.